Thank you, worship team, for once again just leading us uh, in the incredible presence of God. We appreciate you all serving, using your gifts, your talents. Come on, isn't our worship team incredible? Thank you. Just want to um, give a couple of reminders up front before we jump into the word here. Um, just number one, uh, now that school's back in session, just kind of want to encourage some of our teenagers to, to get in community, to, to join us at youth group on Wednesday nights. Um, next Wednesday night, they're going to do something special on the 21st, uh, giving a bunch of stuff away. They want kids from the community to feel, feel welcome to come, to come and enjoy service. So next Wednesday night, they're going to be doing a big back-to-school kickoff here at the church. The goal is to do it outdoors. Uh, we'll see how the weather cooperates. If not, uh, so grateful that we have an incredible facility with a gym that they can use and still do everything that they were going to do outdoors, indoors, with the exception of the bonfire. We won't have open flames in the building. You're welcome. I <laughs> uh, also want to just take a moment to thank everybody. Uh, your continued generosity is just incredible here at the church. Um, just seeing people who are so faithful in building God's kingdom, um, just giving faithfully each and every week. Uh, we appreciate each and every person here that is giving and making sure that we can continue to move the gospel forward here in our community, also supporting the missionaries that we've committed to support to and making sure that all the finances are in order. This church has a history of being generous and we've seen that already in our time here. So just want to thank you, each and every one of you, for your continued faithfulness in that area. It's something we don't have to talk about a lot here because of um, the faithful nature of the people who call Central Assembly home. And if you're a guest, we would love it if you would call this place home uh, and join us uh, in, in, from week to week. We have a, a cool opportunity for you. Um, we are going to be doing a guest, a free lunch for guests or people who um, feel like guests, I guess. Um, I guess current uh, trend would be to say if you identify as a guest, you're welcome to join us uh, for a free lunch on September 25th. We're going to be doing that in the youth room over here. It's a lunch. We're calling it Say Hello. So if you're a guest with us, we would love it if you would just stop by, take a chance to say hello, fill out a Connect card, bring it to our Connect Center, or just drop it in the offering bucket. We want an opportunity to get to know you. So the only reason we're doing this is not because we want you to hear about how awesome this place is or how awesome these people are. We just want to get to know you. So if you are a guest or if you've been starting to come recently, feel like you want to be able to figure out how to get connected in a better way here at this church, we invite you to come and be a part of that. Fill out a connect card. We'll reach out, follow up with you, and invite you specifically to come to that lunch. We would love to have you. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to get to know you. With that all being said, I'm done. Um, just up here talking. The words of Scott are not super valuable. You guys are here to hear the word of the Lord. And we're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be studying Nehemiah for the next couple of months. It's going to be a great opportunity, if you want to, to get into your Bible, to read ahead, to come prepared, or to read behind and fact check your pastor. Because I believe that it is important for each and every one of us to not just rely on what we get from Sunday to Sunday, or for some people every other Sunday to every other Sunday, 
All right, sorry, that was, I thought that was, that was funnier in my head. Um, <laughs> but we want you to engage with God. His word is there for you, and it's always kind of one of those, I try not to make a, a passive-aggressive Midwestern comment when people say, man, I just haven't heard from God in a while. Like, my passive-aggressive nature wants to say, well, have you read his word? Like, it's literally, you can hear from God, it's there for you, just read your Bible. But I encourage you to engage um, and, and, and read along with us. So from week to week, we're going to be tackling just another portion of Nehemiah. So today, we're kicking it off with Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're just going to go through the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. Don't worry about it. We'll get through it fairly quickly here today, or at least we'll try to. I try to, to keep us on pace as much as possible here. Nehemiah 1 1 through 11 says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I don't actually know that, how that's pronounced. Believe it or not, I did look it up and I forgot. So, <laughs> now it happened in the month of Chislev, right? So, you guys, I don't know if that's on your calendar, uh, but. When I looked it up, that would mean like November or December-ish. So we're coming into the month of Chislev, all right? Just so you know that, a little bit of um, Jewish history for you. <laughs> In the 20th year, so what they're talking about is uh, 20 years in exile, 20 years of destruction in Jerusalem. It is actually considered 445 B.C. So we actually have close to a date on when this book was written, which I think is kind of cool because I think so often we struggle to kind of figure out where some of those historical timelines are without some pretty in-depth resources that a lot of us don't fully subscribe to or dive into. So we actually have a fairly close date to when this happened here in, in the history of Nehemiah and in the Bible. It says, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Han and I, one of my brothers came with a certain men, with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So most of this that has just happened, we can actually read about if you want to in Ezra chapter four. So the book right before Nehemiah in your Bible is called Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah historically go together. And oftentimes when you're doing a Bible study, you will read both of them kind of because one of them uh, leads right into the other. They talk about events that are happening at the same time. Nehemiah is a little bit more post as far as the events go. So we are jumping ahead to the book of Nehemiah for time's sake and not digging into the book of Ezra as much. However, for those that would like extra credit, <laughs> looking for some extra studying, you can go ahead and add the book of Ezra to your reading if you want to as well. Um, but if you're... Not as worried about the prequel. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll keep giving you historical context as we go through this series. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept 
and mourned for days. For days. Man, I don't know how often we consider for days of mourning outside of the death of a loved one, but when it came to his home city, he mourned for days. And then it says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. For some of us, we miss that aspect of it. Fasting and praying on the backside of mourning this news. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel who have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and, the prayer, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah chapter 1 right there. One of the things that I think is, is, is important for us to point out. I think everybody gets kind of excited about a comeback story unless it leads to your team's defeat, right? You know, in sports, like, the comeback is always great as long as it doesn't negatively affect my team. And, 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 and I could talk for, for a long time about sports because I love sports and, and talk about different comeback story after different comeback story and, and how some of these moments have just been super inspiring to see where people have come from and how they overcame. You know, and, and, and I swear almost every movie in some way, shape, or form has this moment where everything looks like it's going to fall apart. And yet somehow, like Rocky against Ivan, you know, Drago in Rocky IV. All right, cool. Uh, I thought, you know, people were going to get excited about that. Out of nowhere, this guy overcomes insurmountable odds in the middle of Russia where he doesn't know anybody, where he doesn't belong. And we get so intrigued by these comeback stories in life and we find them to be inspiring and we find them to be motivating and we find them to be 
uh, moments where it engages with like the, the very most excited part of who we are and we get hopeful for a moment. And then those moments come in our lives. And we're like, oh, I like other people's comeback stories. I don't really want to have to come back from this. And so often, we like reading stories, watching movies, hearing stories about people being pushed to the brink of ruin. But when it comes to our own lives, we never look at it the same way. Because it's mine, and I don't want to have to deal with it, and I'd rather the easy way out. I want to give you just a few points from Nehemiah chapter 1 today. The first one is this. It's not what it looks like. In life, so often, we don't understand this concept, that it's not what it looks like. Because as people of faith, the spirit realm is much different than that which we can see, hear, smell, whatever other senses you might think you have. Uh, but the spiritual realm is so much different. And oftentimes it's not what it looks like. When it looks hopeless and when it feels hopeless, it's so hard for us not to just succumb to eminent defeat in our lives. Like I can't tell you how often like I've just kind of seen the way things are going in life and I've kind of just gone, oh, well, I see how this is going. I'm just going to give up early so that way I don't have as much heartache. And so often we forfeit before we understand what God has in store for us. Because we want the easy way. The comeback story is for somebody else. I had one pastor who used to always say this, and I kind of laughed at it just because it was super gimmicky at the time. And, and he would just say it like all the time. And he'd say, your setback is just a setup for your comeback. And, and, and so often in life, we just, don't view, we just don't view those setbacks as if it's positioning us for a greater story. And I can't tell you how often I've just seen despair and hopelessness. And, 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 I, and I just feel like things are compounding and going a certain direction. And next thing you know, I've given up on my hopes and dreams far before they ever had a chance to become realities, just because a forfeit was easier than fighting to a place of defeat. But I, I failed to realize that the only way I could lose spiritually was a forfeit. I, I, there's been several times in my life, and, and I, I even know going around the room in just the, the short amount of time that I've known some of y'all, that there are moments where you get pushed to the place where your dreams felt like a pile of ash. And you just thought there was no way for them to come true. You didn't even know how to say, God, I know you said this. But this is what I see. 
And we fail to realize that that same God created Adam from dust. So that same God can make your dreams come to life from dust and ashes. And it's incredible to me when you've seen God resurrect something that you thought was dead. And then all of a sudden you realize the power that comes in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and you start to feel like you are untouchable. It's crazy because even in our lives, there's been certain things that I've seen God come through in. There's certain areas where I just know he's come through in the final hour or even when I thought it was past time. And yet somehow, out of nowhere, God provides. It's funny because like, in talking with Dennis Lairshaw coming here, we were talking a little bit about housing. And, and, And Heidi and I have had a little bit of a weird housing situation this summer trying to figure out what that looks like for us. And I remember specifically telling him, because he was asking questions and he was worried about it and, and I should have been a little bit more worried about it probably based on what society says and what the market says. And I just said, hey, we've seen God come through in that way. And he always has. Like, in, in, he, just, he just has. And so I just said, I, I have faith for that. We've seen it before. He'll do it again. Like, it was that simple to me in the moment. And though the summer hasn't been that simple to us, it literally worked out the exact same way. And I was able to say, when I I told Dennis I wasn't lying, he did it before, he'll do it again. Right? And when you've seen God move, it gives you the faith you need in that next season of life. And sometimes it doesn't work out exactly the way you thought it should, But down the road, if even in eternity, I believe we'll get those answers. It's not what it looks like. Listen, God has written the greatest redemption story in the history of mankind. When he sent his son Jesus to pay the ultimate price, not just for one of us, but for all of us. It meant that no more are the days where we have to figure out how to atone for our own sins. It was a simple invitation. Like I said earlier, while we we reflected on in a time of communion, it was a simple invitation to his table to receive the grace that God had given us. It is the greatest redemption story in the history of mankind. And we get to live it out and walk it out each and every day of our lives. And at the same time, it's not what it looks like. As I read my Bible, I read about, I read verses that say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Right? I don't know what you're up against today, but the gates of hell shall not prevail. I don't know what you're carrying today. I don't know what, you're, what, what, what sin or what struggle or what pain or what hardship is in your way, but the gates of hell shall not prevail. Come on, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Come on, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Hey, everybody, welcome to church. 
You better believe if Aaron Jones scores a touchdown later today, some of y'all are going to cheer louder than that. I mean, it's not going to be a receiver. <laughs> I don't know which ones are even on your roster right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I wasn't going to do that. Dang it. That's <laughs> what happens when I have a mic. I get to talk. <laughs> and then later on today, I'm going to get all sorts of text messages laughing at me because that's what happens with the Packers and Vikings. The Vikings lose. Where was that when I said, in the gates of hell shall not prevail? I thought we were in church, gosh. <laughs> Listen, God's truth will always remain and will always overcome. It will always remain and it will always overcome. When you feel like life is hopeless and has nothing but despair, God will answer even if it's 11 days later. Come on, God will answer even if it feels like the game is over. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. It's not what it looks like. There's something different when you hit that point in your life where something has to change. You go through moments where you're like, this cannot keep happening. Nehemiah's in that moment probably where there's a storied history in Israel where God redeems them, where God saves them, where God gives them breakthrough. And somehow, some way, the Israelites fail to remember what God has brought them from and they fall back into a situation where they need God to build them out again. And they... Nehemiah's hit that place where he said, this can't keep happening. There's a token response in our lives where we, we've ran around the same tree. We've run into the same roadblock. We've hit that same dead end, fallen in that same pit, struggled with that same stronghold. And there's a, there's a moment in life with an authentic acknowledgement that says, something really does have to change. I can't keep dealing with this problem or with that struggle. And when we hit, when we hit that moment in our lives, some people will call it rock bottom. When we hit that moment in our lives, we have to understand this, that change starts with the truth. Change starts with the truth. And, and, and we live in a world, folks, where people are trying to act like the truth is relative. And not that the truth is absolute. Change starts with true honesty. And oftentimes I've found in life, the person I'm lying to the most is myself. I convince myself in some way, shape, or form, that I can manage this, that it's not as bad as it maybe looks on the outside, or my intentions weren't for that to happen. But until we've hit the place where we really want change or we really seek change, we have to understand that it starts with the truth. And we have to stop lying to ourselves 
that it is someone else's fault or something else's fault. And we have to realize what it takes to move forward. Because point number two, if it really matters, our response will reveal it. If it really matters, our response will reveal it. Are we going to talk about it? We used to say this in our basketball team in college. We say, are you going to talk about it or are you going to be about it? Are you going to do something about it? Are you just going to talk about what's wrong? Are you just going to wallow in it? Or are you going to make the changes necessary to make something happen? Because your response will reveal if it really matters to you. If you aren't going to do the extra work or if you aren't going to seek the truth, if you aren't going to actually pursue something that can make a difference, it didn't really matter that much to you. There's so many things in life that it's kind of like, well, if you know, you know, right? Like, if you've experienced something, you know the difference between what's real and what's fake. And I think sometimes, like, we need to understand that even in relationship. Like, I've, young, when I was earlier in life, I could be fooled by certain gimmicks within people's personalities because I hadn't experienced it before. But once you'd experienced it, you're like, oh, hey, wait, 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 I need to be sensitive to that because I don't think you really want what's best for me. I think you only want what's best for yourself. And I had to learn to decipher some of those things. And sometimes when people are being genuine and authentic, you can't really measure that, right? Well, they said the, the right words, or they said this, or they said that, because those things can all kind of be manipulated. But there's a different feeling to somebody who's genuine or authentic, or a genuine or authentic response to a problem. Because there's a lot of people that like to just point out the problem. Genuine and authentic people do something about a problem, right? It's kind of like, I have, I have this problem in my life where I have this issue. Uh, I have many issues, but I have this one specific issue where I really, really like shoes. Like, really, really like shoes. It's a problem. Um, and, I, but I really like a deal. Like, like, I really like getting deals in life. Like, I love feeling like I'm winning at the sales rack, Right? Like, there's nothing that makes me feel better than, feeling like I, than, than knowing I got a great deal on something. And even better if I can resell that and make money off of it. Like, I love a deal. So, like, it, it creates a little bit of a problem because I love shoes. And, and most of the shoes that I love, I can't get, uh, 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 you know, on sale. But so then I make up for it by buying, like, everything on a clearance rack and finding, like, all of the sales days and everything online. I'm really good at doing some of that stuff. Um, but... When it comes to shoes, the shoes I like, I can't ever really get a deal on them. And so one day I was, um, this was back before uh, eBay got their, their stuff straight and was really able to do authenticity guarantees. And um, I bought a pair of shoes on eBay. And I was so excited because it was one of my favorite pairs of shoes, right? And um, it was a pair of, of, of Air Jordan 
force, not that that means anything to anybody in the room. Uh, they're the black and red colorway, which is the original colorway, which is a big deal to me, probably not to you, it reveals my issues. Um, and it's okay, I've already acknowledged those, right? Public profession, it's okay. Um, but I ordered these on eBay because it was like half price, and I was like so excited, I thought I was just going to be the person that hurry up and jumped on them, right? And these things came in the mail, and I opened the box, and they look right. The box looks right came with the ID card. It came with everything that would have signified that it was authentic with the way it looks. And then I put the shoe on. It felt like a work boot. I wear a size 13. The thing was no bigger than a size 11 and a half. And I couldn't wear it if I wanted to. And I realized it was fake. I didn't know it until I felt the difference. And I had to seek the truth because it just didn't feel right. And so often in our lives, there's these things, these moments in life where we're okay with buying the knockoff fours. We're okay with buying something second rate because it felt better in the moment because it didn't cost me as much. Right? But for Nehemiah, he realized what it was going to cost to see change in the Israelites. He realized what it was going to cost to see change in Jerusalem. He realized what it was going to cost to change a city, to see the Spirit of God move, to bring revival. And I think a lot of times in churches, we want to talk about those things. But we don't have a clue what the cost is. We don't have a clue just how real the commitment is. We don't have a clue just how much God is going to ask of us. And so instead of counting the cost, we give the token response, we say the right church things, and we move on with our lives. I look at this and I wonder if people in the church have any genuine passion for the things of God anymore. I wonder because I see his response in a tough time. It says that Nehemiah mourned for days. On top of that, he coupled it with prayer and fasting. When's the last time you spent days Praying and fasting for your nation. And especially on a day like today, we want to say, God bless America. Friends, revival in America doesn't come from saying three words and moving on. Like, I'm for it. God bless America because we need it. But that's not going to bring a change in this country. Three words is bare minimum commitment to seeing God move in our country. Yet Nehemiah goes into mourning and prayer and fasting for days because he knew what it meant and he was honest with himself. So not only does he do that, but then he goes into a mode of repentance. Now Nehemiah is clearly a devout person of faith. And we're going to get into some of that. 
But he's clearly a devout person of faith. Yet he goes into a time where he is repenting on behalf of all of Israel, claiming sins that I'm guaranteeing are not his own because he understood that change was going to take honesty with the state of his people. And he didn't look at it and go, God, it's their fault. That person committed that sin. That person's the reason that gate got burned down. That person's at fault for this, and that person's at that. So God, I mean, I'd like to see some change, but God bless Jerusalem. I'm sorry. But oftentimes we say the right things, like we want to see God bring revival to our city. We want to see God move in our city. We want to see God pour out in a mighty way, but then we realize the cost. And we realize that it takes ownership. And oftentimes we just move on with our lives because it's convenient. One thing that we are going to learn in the book of Nehemiah, if you take this serious, if you dive into this, if you read this, if you listen to what I'm saying, one thing that you're going to learn from the book of Nehemiah is this, that those who truly love God Love his word enough to know it. We're going to get into it in just a minute. I'm so sorry, I'm going long. Love his word enough to know it. He quotes God and takes God at his word in his prayer. So they love his word enough to know it, and they love his kingdom enough to build it. Come on, if you want to be like Nehemiah, if you want to grow from this book, if you want to grow in faith, if you want to truly love God, you need to know his word and you need to build his kingdom. Nehemiah did not point the finger at somebody else and say, that's their job, that's their responsibility. No, he grabbed, first of all, he went into prayer, he called on God based on God's word, and then he went to work building his kingdom. And even better, Nehemiah understood it's beyond me. And I think it's interesting in our lives how often, like, we get to a place where it's beyond us and we just give up. And we don't realize that that's when faith kicks in. Oftentimes we don't need faith until it's beyond us. I can't tell you how many times in my life I didn't exercise faith until I had exercised all of my gifts, exercised all of my talents, exercised all of my resources, exercised all of my connections. When God was calling me to exercise my faith, because when it's beyond us, that's when the Holy Spirit power kicks in. So number three, consider the power of a covenant. I promise you, I'm not going to try to completely destroy your theological foundation this morning when I say this. But in your life, value covenant more than commandment. Because covenant is what God acts on. 
Covenant is where God moves. Covenant is a requirement from God. He's giving you his word. He's going to do something about it. Commandment is all about you and your obedience. Guess what? Me and all of my obedience is failure. But covenant? That's when God says, I will fulfill my promise to you. Now, there's... there's, a portion, like we have to fulfill our end of that covenant too, but God also, in his understanding, understands that's why he sent Jesus because we couldn't keep this covenant of Moses. And he gave us the grace of Jesus, but we should still be seeking that. But God gave us a covenant. God gave us a promise. God gave us an inheritance. God poured out his promises upon us, his children that he loves. We are co-heirs with Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail hey we're getting better so what you're reading here in Nehemiah as he gets into the second half of this when he tells you know when he's in his prayers he says God remember your word remember remember your covenant to Moses what he's referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31, and then again in Leviticus 26, 40 through 42. So I'm going to read those real quick for you. So Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31 says, When your father, children, and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, as to provoke him to anger... I will call heaven and earth and w- to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over Jordan to, pres- to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And if the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that never see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Then Leviticus 26, 40-42 says this, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, this is what Nehemiah is doing, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquities, then... Come on, anytime you read the Bible and God says, if, find the then. If you're faithful with if, God is faithful with then. That's exactly what covenant means. If you're faithful with if, God is faithful with then. Because God is a promise keeper and God has not and will not fail. He has not and will not fail. So if, come on, if, I always say it's the biggest word in the Bible, if, 
then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Come on, commandments are all about us and what we can accomplish. But covenants are a promise from God and God will fulfill that with which he has promised. God is a promise keeper. Well, my kids will sing that song for hours in the car. God is a promise keeper. Nehemiah didn't call on the commandments. And even in this moment, I'm sure he's able to say in some way, shape, or form, he's kept the commandments, but he talks about the treachery of his fathers and their sins. He didn't call on the commandments that God gave to Moses. He called on the covenant that God gave to Moses. He called on the covenant that God gave to his people when they crossed the Jordan into Jericho. He called on the promise of God because that promise had value and the commandments represented their failures. And when we can call on God's covenant, we understand that he is flawless. He's never been defeated. He's never been overcome. He's never been overwhelmed. Nobody's ever even stood a chance against him. Faith in God's promises. Listen to me. Faith in God's promises are as sure as that which we can hold in our hands. Oftentimes we have this, this mentality in life that says, I'll see it when I believe it, or I'll believe what I see. So because I can see this microphone, it exists. I can experience it. I can see that it functions as I hear it through the speakers because we can experience it with our physical senses. We don't doubt it. But faith in God is every bit as sure as that which we can sense. One of my favorite statements to live by is this. Some people believe what they see. But I am committed to seeing what I believe. Some people believe what they see, but I'm committed to seeing what I believe because I believe in the promises of God and the covenant that he's given me in my life when he sent his son, Jesus. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come back up here as I gave you this fourth point. But when we understand the power that we have in who God is, we can change the function and how we operate going forward. But humility often looks different than we perceive it. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And this is the statement that I want to highlight. It says, And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It seems to me that over, the, you know, over time, believers have gotten this weird idea that humility and success somehow are in opposition to one another. 
And we have this weird way we go about life with self-denial, self-loathing, self-depreciation. Where somehow, if we just beat ourselves up enough, we'll be perceived as being humble. We'll say things that devalue who we are and what we're capable of. And we don't walk in the power and might of who God called us to be or in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within us. So oftentimes, we think that humility looks like making fun of ourselves or talking about our failures or our shortcomings or acknowledging what we're not good at. And honestly, I feel like in most cases, it just leads to a lack of self-confidence and even worse at times, a lack of self-worth to the point to where we, we allow ourselves to be beat up as if we're incapable of anything more. And we understand that in Jesus, we are more than conquerors, but we don't even have the ability to speak that properly because we have so much self-doubt and so, much, so many self-worth issues in our lives. And what I think it actually looks like to progress in humility, or what I think humility actually looks like, is, is that we progress in life with grace and honor. Even that we progress in life with worship by giving God honor where he's due. I regularly pray, God, let me honor you with how I steward this gift that you've given me. It doesn't mean I don't use the gift. It doesn't mean I, don't, it doesn't mean I downplay the gift. It doesn't mean I downplay what I'm able to do, but I turn the attention to the person, to the one, to the creator of all things that put that gift in me. It's called a testimony. And so often we keep our testimonies hidden and we keep them to ourselves because in some way, shape, or form, we're afraid that it's going to look like we lack humility. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians downplay something that God has done because they're afraid that somebody else might be offended because they're somehow prideful. Like, no offense, you couldn't do that yourself if you wanted to. It's from God. Give him glory. Honor him with the work of your hands. The world around you will take notice. When he's given you a gift, let it shine for the world to see and give him glory when you get the chance to. Don't hold it back, but let his gifts shine. And in the same way, Understand your limitations. I think that's what humility is. Knowing when I need to ask somebody else for help because they are gifted and I am not. In my life, I've gotten to this place several times where I couldn't do something, but God put somebody in my life who could. I had to be humble enough to call them and ask them for help. 
Oftentimes, that's how my car gets fixed. People who have a gift and they use it to honor God and to help somebody in need. Listen, God's favor is incontestable. It's unexplainable. And it's our greatest asset in negotiation in life. Don't apologize for God's favor. Don't downplay the work of the Lord. Don't look at it as just a coincidence because God doesn't operate in coincidence. God knows what he's doing. And he's given you a gift. Stop apologizing for blessings. Stop apologizing because God has given you something in your life because he loves his child. Matthew 7. God talks about how he is a good father and how much more does he want to give good gifts than those of us on earth who are evil men. And we want to give our kids good gifts. It says God wants to give them even more. He loves you. He cares for you. And he blesses you. Don't apologize for a blessing. Turn it back to praise and honor and glorify God with those blessings that he's given you. Nehemiah understands that. And he also understands that God has given me purpose. So he asks for success. In a church, we've gotten to a place sometimes where we shun success because it means that you're better than me and it's not the case. So we downplay it, we shun it, we, 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 we avoid it, and we don't ask God for favor. Nehemiah is about to walk into the throne room of the king and he's about to ask him for the biggest favor he's ever asked for in his entire life. He asked God to give him favor and to grant him success. But he also didn't do so without days of preparing the spiritual ground that was necessary for that big of an ask. He was making deposits in heaven with his prayer and fasting so he could make a withdrawal on earth. If you want to see God move, Nehemiah has given us the blueprint. But we have to understand that the spiritual realm is different. We have to understand that God has already won the victory. We have to understand that if it matters, if it really, really matters, Our response will prove it. We have to understand God has already promised it. And we have to understand that it's beyond us. And we need him. If we want to see God move in this city the way God moved in that city, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without genuine faith. We cannot do it on our own.
prayer has to become our first response. Not only does it have to become our first response, it has to be our greatest commitment. Nehemiah was committed. Nehemiah took ownership in a way that most of us have never considered taking in our entire lives because we've always been okay with it being somebody else's problem, somebody else's purpose, somebody else's fault, somebody else's failure. And Nehemiah said, not this guy. God, you have ordained me, you have called me, and you have given me an opportunity. And I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm sure going to make sure that I'm seeking you first. That your presence is my priority. Because God, I cannot do this without you. I cannot go to the throne room of the king and I cannot ask for favor to change another city to build another nation, to leave my position of power as the cupbearer. Listen, as a cupbearer, we think of that maybe as like it's a joke. Hey, you get to, you get to taste the, the, the wine before the king drinks it. No, you get to taste everything before the king gets it. So first of all, you're getting some really choice meals. Second of all, you've been put in a place of great trust. Think about how much you have to trust your cupbearer. Because if that cupbearer hasn't done his homework, if he doesn't trust what's coming through that kitchen, if he doesn't believe it, he's not eating it. If he thinks it's poison, it means it's his life. So he's not going to recommend it. As we get into the rest of this book, we want to study what it looks like for God to move in a city because I believe that God has even more in store in this city and in this region. I believe that God has even more in store for the community and the people around us, but it's going to take people who are committed, who truly love God, who truly seek Him, who truly know His Word and want to build His kingdom. It's going to take a commitment if we're going to see God move and restore a city to revive a city and see what God has for those people who need him most in this community. We can't just rely on our initial conclusions and assumptions. We can't just try to fix the problem on our own. And we can't just act on our impulses, but we need to seek God, wholeheartedly, individually, 
and not just on Sundays and not just when it feels right and not just when it feels good and not just when we have a need, but because the community, because the city around us needs Jesus. We need to go to God. We need to take ownership and we need to understand what he has promised because he's already won the victory. The worship team is going to close with the song. You can stand and worship. Honestly, this, this is a moment where typically we say, hey, let's pray together. But honestly, here's the challenge this week. How will you respond on Monday when it's inconvenient? On Wednesday when life is busy? On Friday when you've probably already forgotten the words that I spoke this morning? Because if it really matters, our response I'm going to pray for us as we close and I'm going to invite Levi to, to lead the team and the team to lead us in a moment of worship. Once I'm done praying, you're free to go. I ask that you be blessed and don't give me too hard of a time if my team loses. So let's stand together.